Welcome everyone to another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. In this episode, I have the pleasure of talking with um, Danny Lennon of Sigma Nutrition, and he can correct me if I pronounce that uh, name incorrectly. I never know if it's Lennon, Lenon, whatever it is, so he can correct me on that, but we'll get to that. Um, He is the founder of Sigma Nutrition, which if you guys do not listen to podcasts, then this is one of the few ones that I actually listen to. I used to be a huge podcast listener back in the day, um, learning about nutrition, exercise, all those kinds of things. And slowly I stopped listening to them. But Sigma Nutrition is one that I still listen to. So it's an absolute honor to have him on the show. But first, let's get this intro out of the way and then let's get to the show. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Welcome to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now, here's your host, Raghav Sharma. All right, guys, like I was saying, today we are talking with Danny of Sigma Nutrition. And um, Danny is quite the person in the nutrition world. Um, He's pretty respected across all platforms, I guess you could say, on social media and also in real life. He's spoken at conferences all across the world and is on the advisory board of the Sports Nutrition Association, which is kind of like a governing body for sports nutrition um, across the world. He also has a master's in nutritional sciences, has worked as a nutrition practitioner, kind of done it all, but most importantly, is the founder of Sigma Nutrition, which has been putting out phenomenal information since 2014. So Danny, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure and uh, really looking forward to chatting today. So am I. Can you tell us a little bit about yourselves aside from like what I already mentioned? Sure. So uh, I think I'll, I'll start with some basics. And if anything sounds interesting, I'm more than happy to to dive more <laughs> into that. Um, but yeah, my, my interest in nutrition, I suppose, started when I actually first started college I went to study biology and physics and at that time my main interest outside of academia was in athletic performance I played a lot of soccer growing up I played Gaelic football which is a sport here in Ireland um, and in college I was starting to do some things like Brazilian jiu-jitsu and, and and lifting weights in the gym and so when I went to college I that was the first time I got exposed to oh there's these things called peer-reviewed research papers and we can find out answers to questions based on scientific studies and here's how you go and read them. So really in my own time, I started doing this for areas of interest, not related to my academic courses, uh, but related to my own interests in, in sports performance. And so stumbled across nutrition, of course, and found that fascinating. But more and more as I looked at that, I got interested in nutrition generally as opposed to sports nutrition. So if we fast forward a few years, I ended up uh, qualifying as a high school teacher of physics on biology. Did that for about a year before realizing, I don't think this thing is for me. I might want to explore some other areas. And so went back and did my master's degree in nutritional sciences. And off the back of that, I'd started doing some nutrition consulting, starting to produce bits of content. And then, like you said, in, in early 2014, uh, Sigma Nutrition was born and uh, with the goal of putting out evidence-based information around nutrition. And so really things have developed 
over that time. And I think now our, our main focus is on how do we provide people who are looking for detailed, accurate, comprehensive information around the details of nutrition science, uh, the most, uh, what we can see as objective evidence-based information. So most of our audience tends to be dietitians, health professionals, nutrition science students, um, nutrition science uh, lecturers or practitioners or postdocs. So we kind of are, are trying to bridge that gap between that research that's going on with people who are then going to use it with their own patients and clients. And so that's our kind of middleman position, I guess. Uh, but there are some of the basics um, about me, um, but happy to discuss anything else. Definitely. I think it's hugely valuable, the work that you do, taking all of that information, putting it, as you said, in that detailed, comprehensive and objective manner. Um, and also like how you took that upon yourself, start reading the actual studies and the actual like data behind a lot of these things, because when people get interested in sometimes they start reading blogs or doing all these things, not reading the actual research and reading someone else's interpretation of it. And I think it really goes to show how you guys provide such good um, evidence based information that's objective so that it allows people to get information. And it definitely really shows in the work that you've done. I appreciate um, that, man. That's very, very nice to hear. It's, I can tell you, I do not have as much time to read the research myself as I would like, just because being in the hospital as a doctor is so busy and you don't always get time to sit down, but listening to a podcast like yours while I'm on the drive to work is just phenomenal. It keeps me up to date because I trust you guys with the information that you're providing. Thank you. That's awesome. So you're fulfilling your goal there, but with my goal, my goal is preventive medicine, and this is the Preventive Medicine Podcast, and I know you're not necessarily like thinking medicinally, you're thinking more nutritionally, but what does preventive medicine mean to you from your perspective? Yeah, no, I think this is an incredibly important concept because as I'm sure you're all too much aware, it can be sometimes a term that gets unfortunately hijacked by people who are not even medical practitioners and maybe wish they were and then start using this term um, or maybe used in a way that isn't actually evidence-based. But I've, I've seen it, I, I think to me, true preventative medicine is how do we take everything we know about chronic disease risk uh, and lifestyle factors that lead into that and how do we then start looking at information we can provide people um, and or even at a policy level what we can provide people that can head off some of these development of chronic diseases as opposed to only looking at treatment for them, which again is a very noble goal, um, but sometimes is very difficult to get at. So preventative medicine uh, to me encapsulates all those things around lifestyle uh, of which I put nutrition as kind of one of those. And how do we therefore use those tools like nutrition? That's not necessarily a medical treatment, but is something that can change the risk profile of developing certain chronic diseases later down the road. And so from, from my sense, I have obviously that nutrition bias, but I think the same things would fit in in any other uh, type of sense. And that could be medical interventions, but it could also be other lifestyle interventions. Um, so for me, I think it's actually quite, um, I, I see a lot of overlap for what our content tends to focus around these days, because we do try and place a lot of focus on chronic disease risk, public health nutrition and those big broad changes in dietary patterns that may influence disease risk as opposed to like these nonsensical arguments over optimizing <laughs> half percent of something with a with a certain supplement so um yeah hopefully that something in that bit of a ramble uh, answers the question 
Oh no, definitely. I like how you mentioned that nutrition is a tool um, that's used within the uh, field of preventive medicine, because when a lot of people think about it, they just think of it as just nutrition and exercise. That's all you're doing. You're focusing on eating right, quote unquote, whatever that means for that person and exercising also, quote unquote, whatever that means for that person. But it's just a tool in a comprehensive like picture as well as inserting that policy level as well, which is hugely important when it comes to like large scale population um, endeavors. Yeah, I think um, that's actually a really important point. Sorry to jump in on no, that. No, go ahead. I, I think something you highlight there is is one of the key things we've tried to highlight a lot on our podcast is one of these hallmarks of, of pseudoscience that sometimes infiltrates nutrition space is these people trying to talk about nutrition as if it's a replacement for medicine, right? Food is, is medicine, right? And these types of, this type of rhetoric that is, is nonsensical, food is not medicine, right? Medicine is medicine. And then also we have that nutrition, yeah, can be very important in this kind of preventative medicine space that you're discussing, but there's so much other parts to it. You can't just say, I'm going to adopt diet X that this person told me about, and now I can get it rid with all everything to do with conventional medicine. And like, it's like, it's such a frustrating thing to see. Um, and I, I see it happen all the time. So yeah, I completely agree with you seeing its place uh, and yeah, it can be important, but it's not a replacement for other aspects and other tools that are being used. And now that you brought that up, one of the things that annoys me the most is when um, there are actual physicians who've gone to medical school, completed residency, and then at some point, I don't know what happens, but they like turn a switch and suddenly they, be, they go like full food is medicine and they start recommending everyone just away from medicines, which will definitely be beneficial for some people who need them. And they're just like, oh, if you have celery, it'll reduce your inflammation. So you probably will not need um, hypertension medication, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. I it, don't know where that switch happens. <laughs> man, I, I don't know. It's it's such a, and, and it's a common pattern that you see for so many of these like quacks that are out there of like, uh, because they have that credential of being, let's say an MD, now they can go sign some like book deal or whatever and write a book yeah. about nutrition and, and make a bunch of money and it's all nonsense. And it does real harm. Like you said, it actually gets people to give up on um, drug treatments that are really useful. It's getting people to stop taking a statin that could save their life because they have this new diet or it's getting them to stop taking a um, hypertensive medication because now they've or taking some supplement that someone sold them. Um, and it's really a, a damaging narrative as opposed to the empowering one that they, they painted as. Uh, a question for you there, I guess, off that same topic is how do you stay objective? There's so many people when it comes to nutrition, if you browse Twitter, I'm sure you've engaged in these discussions and arguments on Twitter and where else. But how do you stay objective in the face of so many people just subscribing to one diet, lifestyle, nutritional strategy? What is kind of your mental approach to staying objective? Yeah, this is such a huge question because um, as human beings, we are prone to biases, right? We are prone to not being objective. And I think for me, that's why really understanding what evidence-based practice is, is so important because science generally as a tool and evidence-based practice as how it's set up and supposed to be practiced is a way for us to get away from our normal human fallibilities that we know that humans are prone to making errors in our thinking are prone to biases are prone to thinking emotionally all of these are problems when we're trying to make a objective truthful decision so what we do is try and take all those human elements out of it as much as possible and rely on objective data but that we're looking at it in the in a system that is 
the the best way at arriving at truth. And I think this is what people misunderstand about science, that it's just a, a system of trying to arrive at our best approximation of the truth currently. That's what science is doing. And as practitioners, we can try and be evidence-based and understanding what that means. Um, and so knowing that it doesn't mean, can I find one research paper on PubMed that supports my claim? It's about <laughs> what is the overall body of evidence in this area? What are the different lines of evidence? And do they converge and point towards one general direction that I can have most confidence in right now? And then acting appropriately with that. Um, so for, for me, it's, uh, and, and trust me, I like, I've made those errors that, that, that everyone else has. And like when I was first getting interested in nutrition, of course, I was like reading articles on the internet that all sound really cool and people promising all these major things of um, how we've been conned by the dietary guidelines and this new diet is the way to eat and it all sounding really believable. And I fell for it the same way anyone would fall for it. But once you start putting a layer of scrutiny over it and once you start looking at some of the evidence and then you see that this is not uh, evidence-based information, the, the kind of short answer to your question is constantly coming back to, is this evidence-based? Is, is this evidence-based practice of how I'm arriving at this answer? Have I looked at all the areas? Have I looked at the contradictory evidence and what is the weight of evidence in this area, whether I personally like the answer or not? Um, and just kind of reminding myself of that is what I attempt to do. Um, hopefully I, I do that most of the time. Um, and hopefully if I, if I fail at any point in that, I, I catch myself relatively quickly by kind of revisiting that question, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And I think the point of, um, like looking at one statement or claim in the context of an entire body of evidence around that same subject is hugely important. And I love that you brought that up because everyone falls for the same thing where they read an article and they see a citation like, oh. That means this is evidence-based, right? And then uh, this means that this person has done their research, they've done their due diligence, they know what they're talking about, when in reality, it's just one citation, probably a cherry-picked study that this person wants to support their claim, and then they're claiming it as evidence-based. So this is one of the reasons that Sigma does a fantastic job of going through this. And the follow-up question there, I guess, is you, we talked a little bit about where the idea for it came from, but what, a, what kind of accomplishments are you most proud of through Sigma? Wow, that's that's uh, something I probably don't ponder on on too much. I, I think there's definitely been some I enjoyable moments that I've really enjoyed of uh, being at specific events that that we've ran or, or where you actually get to interact with people in person and you can see a crowd of people and you get to talk to them afterwards. I think that for me, that kind of consolidates the fact that it's actually having an impact. I think sometimes it's very easy. For, uh, to lose sight of that fact because sure I can look at like number of downloads of the podcast episode that week but you're just seeing numbers right where mm -hmm. you're actually meeting people who have listened to the podcast for a period of time and have found it useful and tell you a story about how that's helped their nutrition practice or their um, their their other professional practice um, or their own health like that's really powerful so it's those moments of meeting people in person I think I look back on most fondly. Um, and uh, then I think probably other um, kind of random or arbitrary milestones, like we, we recently passed our 400th episode, um, things like With that. Phenomenal episodes, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we, we, we tried for that. We <laughs> want to do something special. Um, 
So yeah, like doing that and the fact that it's lasted that period of time and people are still finding it interesting. Um, and I think it's actually getting better. I think over the last few years, um, to me at least, um, I think it's continued to get better. So um, yeah, th- there are some of the things that come to mind. Definitely. We could probably talk about topics like we have already for an hour, but let's get into some actual nutritional stuff because that's what the people are here for. That's why we're doing this podcast. So the first question is the calorie question. So when people are scrolling through their um, Twitter feeds, Instagram feeds, just social media in general, you kind of have two camps to say where you have like the calories camp where they say like calories all that matter. Then you have a camp that says calories don't matter at all. Eat a like healthy whatever healthy means to that specific person, eat a healthy diet and you'll be okay. Don't worry about calories. So out of the context of weight loss, so let's say we're not talking about like someone needs to cut their calories to lose weight. Are all calories the same? So the short answer is uh, in terms of calorie being a unit of energy, calories are all the same. In terms of are we saying the 2,000 calories from a certain groups of food has the same health impact of eating 2,000 calories from other types of food, then the answer is clearly no. Uh, We know that it's not only calories that impact our health. There's a variety of things in relation to our food that has health impacts first layer down would be the macronutrient consumption. By that we mean protein, carbohydrates, and fats. The amounts of those within the diet have differing impacts on health, which we can certainly talk about. Even within that, we have subclasses of those nutrients. Most well-known probably would be dietary fat. So the amount of saturated fat or unsaturated fat in the diet, if that's more or less, that can have a health impact and, and various risks of chronic disease. We also know that foods contain vitamins and minerals and fiber and the amounts of those within the diet impact uh, our, our health. So clearly different diets and different food groups, they're going to have different numbers of those um, nutrients and therefore they are going to have differential health impacts. Um, at the same time, if we're talking purely about calories and, and energy of a diet as it relates to, let's say, body weight regulation, as you mentioned, um, in a kind of very simplistic sense, sure, if two calories have, let's say, the same calorie intake and certainly, let's say, will also match them for protein, in that sense, they will probably have the same impact on, say, changes in body weight generally. Um, But practically in the world, there is a very big difference between if you were to eat all of your food from, let's say, ultra processed or what we think of as like junk foods, and you were to only eat say 2,000 calories of that per day versus lots of whole minimally processed foods at 2,000 calories a day. They have different impacts on the satiety response we get, so how full we feel, and therefore how maybe easy it would be to continue to eat that amount of food, and then therefore our food choices and so on. So all of that is to say that, um, sure, in in a strict sense, uh, a calorie is just a unit of energy, and so we can have different foods will still contribute energy generally to our overall intake, our overall calorie intake, but the foods we select in our diet will have differing health impacts. And that's why we have certain recommendations around what a healthy dietary pattern is, is based on what those differences are, if that makes sense. Now, one of the reasons I asked this question, and I hate that we have to keep like asking this question about calories, but it, it's like seemingly the most basic aspect of nutrition, but at the same time, the most complex because there's still so much debate around it. Sure. Um, one of the reasons that I asked this is that there's obviously this famous experiment where his professor ate only Twinkies. 
um, and it was calorically controlled for uh, weight loss, I believe. And then at the end of it, he ended up losing weight and um, all of his blood markers improved, um, his LDL, all of those things, HDL went up, LDL went down, all of those good things. So that's where kind of a lot of the arguments come from sometimes about like, it doesn't matter what you're eating calorie wise, as long as you are, um, I guess, within caloric balance. So that's kind of the devil's advocate side. Can you speak anything about that? Like, would it have been better if he was eating like more fruits, vegetables, whole foods, or does that not matter in that context of weight loss now? Yeah, great question. So there, there's two interesting elements to that specific um, uh, story that kind of shed light on the question. One is uh, the duration of time we're talking about. And then second was the the weight loss that occurred, like you outlined. If someone loses a significant amount of body weight, regardless of what type of dietary strategy that was there, we typically do see improvements in certain blood markers, particularly for someone who, let's say, is in an overweight category or uh, a person living with obesity, and they lose, let's say, uh, one of the figures we most often see dramatic changes in research would be like a 10% reduction in body weight. When we see that, you will see almost across the board their blood sugar improve, their fasting insulin improve, their blood lipids improve due to that weight loss. It's probably the most potent thing that we see in terms of a dietary intervention on certainly glycemic markers uh, and maybe also lipid markers. Now, in order to lose weight, we know that the fundamental thing that needs to be in place is a caloric deficit. So you need to be expending more energy than you're taking in. That's a calorie deficit, more energy, more calories being burned than you are consuming. How you do that is kind of secondary to that, right? So in other words, if you are eating a, a really healthful diet, but you're not in a calorie deficit, so you're matching your intake with your expenditure, you're probably not going to lose any weight, right? There, there would be no reason to. We don't want people losing weight for no reason. If you're eating a diet of Twinkies in, in, that, in that particular story, and you are in a calorie deficit, so you're consuming less energy than your body needs to maintain its current weight, you will lose weight right? Now, it might not be the most helpful long-term. It certainly isn't the most helpful long-term, and I can explain why, but you will lose weight in that period of time, and you will therefore see these changes in blood markers. Now, what we therefore uh, need to think about is, well, is that a healthy thing? Well, that acute setting did lead to improvements in those health markers, and certainly if we can get people to lose a significant amount of weight that improves their health, that should be seen as a short-term intervention that can have a health impact, but that's not their long-term diet, right? One of the best cases we see right now is um, outstanding work done, done in the UK from Roy Taylor, where they've given meal replacement um, of between 800 and 1,000 calories for people to, uh, with, with type 2 diabetes. And you basically can see remission of their type 2 diabetes through the weight loss they achieve because it's like 10 to 15 percent of weight loss being achieved we're not saying that if someone with type 2 diabetes should be placed on meal replacements of a thousand calories a day for life right this is a short-term intervention mm -hmm. with a specific goal to lose a certain amount of weight and then we can transition to longer term um, health impacts the same thing here that sure we saw these short-term changes from eating in a calorie deficit from only eating Twinkies in the same way that if I told you just eat a tub of Ben and Jerry's and that's it <laughs> every day for the next month, you would probably lose weight, right? Because there's just not enough calories there to, relative to your energy needs. But we know the things that correlate with good long-term health and that's the average of what your diet looks like over a long period of time. 
Um, so that's the things like having an appropriate amount of fiber, enough fruit and vegetables, enough micronutrients, um, limiting the amount of saturated fat, limiting the amount of sodium, limiting adding sugars, those things all impact health. And they have an impact over long periods of time, right? So if you have a high saturated fat intake for the next month, you're not going to develop atherosclerosis. If you have a high saturated fat intake for the next two decades, you have a really high risk of, of starting to develop that. So there's this cumulative um, temporal effect, or so in other words, like a, a kind of time-based effect here um, to some of these things. So with all that said, yes, you can see these changes in a short period of time. All of those health improvements were just because of the weight loss. There weren't anything to do with the, the diet. Um, but in a long period, over a longer term, we know that that is not a healthful diet because it doesn't contain many of the nutrients we wanted to consume. Um, and uh, there are other foods that would be nutritionally superior. In other words, they provide those micronutrients, provide fiber, provide polyphenols, et cetera. Does that answer the question? Yeah, it definitely answers the question. And building off of that, we've you've mentioned saturated fat several times in there. So I'm, I have to ask at this point. Um, you mentioned that if you eat saturated fats over like a large amount of saturated fats over an extended amount of time, that you're going to increase your risk for atherosclerosis. Um, whereas some people on the internet might argue that as long as you're calorically controlled, um, uh, eating saturated fat is not necessarily any more harmful for you than eating a larger amount of carbohydrates. What does the data show about saturated fat? Should people be eating uh, like chasing saturated fat, I guess, um, and trying to forcefully put it into their diets in places that it wouldn't necessarily be? And what's your what's the data say on that? Yeah, so the the link between saturated fat uh, and cardiovascular disease risk is um, via the impacts that saturated fat intake has on LDL cholesterol, or we could be even more specific, LDL particle number, or even more specific, ApoB uh, uh, ApoB containing lipoproteins. Uh, but in general, we can think of that just LDL cholesterol, and so having high intakes of saturated fat, and we can define that in a moment, will increase uh, one's likelihood of having elevated LDL cholesterol. And if you have elevated LDL cholesterol over a long period of time, that's increasing likelihood of de developing atherosclerosis. Because and a more quick question, is that independent or dependent of calories at that point? So that will be um, independent of calories. If you have okay. a, so someone could be at weight maintenance is not in a calorie surplus, but if you have a sky high LDL cholesterol or a sky high ApoB, um, you are increasing that risk of developing atherosclerosis just by the fact that there's more of these particles around. Um, and they are therefore more likely to get into the arterial wall where they kind of dump their cholesterol content. And that starts this progression of atherosclerosis. Mm -hmm. So, um, with uh, those levels then of a saturated fat, we certainly start to see that kind of real clear distinction when you get past say 16% of someone's total calorie intake from saturated fat versus lower intakes, let's say from 10% or less, because that's typically where we see dietary guidelines. And so at that point, if we have above 16 or above 18%, they would be what we class as high saturated fat intakes. And that is going to increase the risk that someone has then high LDL cholesterol and therefore increases the risk of cardiovascular disease. And that's why we see virtually all dietary guidelines have a, um, a kind of a limit or a suggested limit of 10% of your calories from saturated fat or a bit 
less. So um, yeah, in in my mind, people should be aware of saturated fat intake and certainly not think just because I'm at weight maintenance, I can have as much of it uh, as I want. And generally you probably want to skew most of your choices for dietary fat towards unsaturated sources. Um, but we can certainly dive more into, into that. We want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only. We also want to remind you of our Instagram page at PreventPod, where we share various content relating to each episode that you can share with your friends if you enjoy our episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list so you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get back into this episode. All right. Continuing on, um, you are also interested in exercise as well as in nutrition. So I want to touch on this just a little bit, kind of um, those two aspects of approaching preventive medicine as we discussed. Um, there's these two sides, and most of the time it seems that they go hand in hand. Do they have unique benefits in the say that you could have a good diet, quote unquote, of everything that we've been discussing, and you can be perfectly healthy, or you can just exercise, be in the exercise guidelines, and also be healthy? Can you do one or the other, or do they kind of go both hand in hand? Or are they synergistic? How do those two play together? Uh, in, in my mind, I see certainly there's going to be um, a synergistic effect. And, and certainly if you're doing both, you're in a much better place than doing one or the other. I think it has to be a very extreme situation um, where you could do one and not the other and and kind of not have any negative consequences from it. So let's say if someone was going to just have what we would classify as like a really poor dietary uh, pattern, let's say they're only eating processed foods, maybe they're just kind of consuming huge amounts of, of sugar and calories and so on. Then technically if they have a really high energy expenditure from doing like an insane amount of activity, then they are at least mitigating some of the risk there. Probably not completely, but certainly they're mitigating the uh, detrimental impacts that there would be if there's a calorie surplus and they're gaining excess body fat. So by that really high energy expenditure, they're mitigating some of that, that negative downside. But I would still argue that that still doesn't tell us about some of the health impacts of those food choices. Again, if, if we could talk about the, the long period of time of um, their um, saturated fat intake on cardiovascular disease risk, we could talk about if they're not getting enough fiber, how that relates to risks of, let's say, colorectal cancer. Um, we could talk about how if they're not consuming um, uh, enough certain vitamins, their their risk of developing maybe a, a new, uh, maybe not a full out deficiency possibly, but maybe even just a really suboptimal uh, level of certain vitamins. Um, there's also then things like uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease where they could have fat deposits around their liver and yet externally look healthy, uh, but that might be driven by some of their food choices. So I think, um, again, there's probably big problems if someone has like, I can eat whatever I want as long as I do some degree of exercise. On the other side, I think it's it's also quite common to see people who maybe don't do any exercise at all, but think if I just eat a certain way, um, then that'll be fine. I think that's really neglecting a, a huge amount of, of literature we have at this point of the health benefits of exercise. Like it's just so potent for so many things. Um, 
and that's n nothing to do even with its body composition effects, which are obviously very strong for both uh, muscle mass and and uh, maintaining a healthy body weight. But even things on like risk of uh, cognitive decline and uh, dementia and so on, um, pretty much like you you could take any of the chronic diseases and look at impacts of exercise on risk reduction. So for for me, yeah, I think it's it's a strange dichotomy that someone would want to paint as opposed to thinking, no, these are both two really important things um, and I have control over both of them to some degree. So why wouldn't want to pay at least some attention to them uh, and not even having to go to any extremes, just have some degree of attention placed on them, I think is the best place to go. Yeah, I think the viewing them as tools is more likely for someone to like kind of incorporate both of them as tools into a healthier lifestyle versus just taking one of those approaches and be like, oh, I'm worrying about my diet right now. Oh, I'm worried about exercise right now. And also like how you kind of answer the question, can you out exercise a bad diet? And obviously that answer is no, um, based on everything you've just discussed. And also I want to add on, we talked about food as medicine. Um, I think exercise as medicine is one of like the hashtags or things that I can actually kind of get behind just because there's so many numerous benefits. You always see these like lists of posts that um, are saying like improves blood pressure, improves lipids, improves cardiovascular disease risk, reduces all cause mortality, improves mental health, decreases like risk of depression and all these things. And it's a list. It's like, if you had a pill, would you take this? And it's, yeah, it's exercise. Yeah. So that's actually something that I can yeah. get behind. Yeah, it, it's so potent. And it, it's interesting uh, on my podcast, I often ask people, uh, if you could advise people to do one thing each day that would be beneficial to people's lives, what would it be? And, and a relatively like um, significant number of people that are nutrition researchers, they're often their answer is exercise because that's the thing that is most potent. It's something that you can build into your lifestyle. Uh, there's no one type of exercise you have to do. That's the great thing. Like you can pick something that you enjoy and make it a regular part of your life and make it enjoyable and you get all these benefits from it. So it's like, of course, that's the, the, the go-to thing. So yeah, I think you're, you're right. Yeah. It, it's so potent. Yeah. Um, now diving a little bit away from that back to nutrition, one of the questions that I've been kind of dying to ask you is um, there's so many specific nutrient-based questions. You just released a podcast in polyphenols and um, a lot of people, number one, don't have any clue what polyphenols are. And number two, if they for some reason do or start listening to it, suddenly they get incredibly worried about their intake of polyphenols. And then they kind of have the single-minded focus of, okay, I need to eat foods with polyphenols. Or even talking about something else, like let's talk about like maybe like a random uh, vitamin or uh, mineral like magnesium. Oh, I'm low on magnesium. I need to start eating that. So there's so many specific nutrient-based questions. How do people know what matters in a sea of so many different nutrients? Yeah, this is fantastic because this is one of the things I'm, I'm most interested to try and impress upon people be, because of the audience that we have with the podcast. We love getting into these, these details on nutrition science of looking at some of these nutrients and the mechanisms and why things are having an impact. But we're very clear on in a, in a public health setting the, like you say, these things are irrelevant to talk about. They're just confusing. And, and they're actually, even if they're understood, there's no point focusing on them. Like, I'm not going to go and track the, the micrograms of various polyphenol compounds <laughs> in my diet or the milligrams of a certain micronutrient I had. So the, the job of what 
of what people are, are doing in nutrition is we understand all this through the the research and then in terms of translating that into practice is how do we translate that into food-based terms and this is why when you look at something how the dietary guidelines for example are set up is to do just that how do we take this nutrition science and translate that into food-based recommendations for people that then take care of all these considerations they don't have to worry about what a polyphenol is if they're eating in accordance to the guidelines, right? So if you look at what most guidelines across the world all have in common, you have at the base uh, high intakes of fruits and vegetables, prioritizing whole grains over, say, refined grains, having leaner cuts of meat versus fattier cuts of meat if that's if someone chooses to consume those, um, limiting the amounts of ultra-processed foods, having sources of, of fiber like legumes, so peas, um, beans, lentils, things like that. So we have all these kind of commonalities of foods and foods groups that people should consume. And they are set up that way because they take care of all these considerations of if you're doing that, you're going to be getting enough fiber. You're going to be getting enough polyphenols. You're going to be um, having a diet that is low in saturated fat by default. You're going to have a, a diet that doesn't have a ton of of uh, sodium in it or lots of excess added sugars. Um, it's going to, it's going to have enough of those nutrients that we don't need to start as individuals in the population diving into uh, single nutrient, um, interventions or, or research mm -hmm. in that area. So I think that's the way to go is like step back of what are the food-based recommendations here? And for people in the general population, the good news is generally, if we look at big dietary patterns, that's the thing to be aware of. What do you eat on average over a long period of time? Doesn't have to be perfect every day. Uh, there's room for pretty much every food that you ever want to eat just for taste. You can still consume it, but it just comes down to the overall intake, how much of it you're consuming and how often, and what your average diet looks like. And if that's relatively in accordance with most of the healthy dietary patterns, whether that's what you see in the guidelines or whether it's like a Mediterranean diet or a DASH diet, there's all these different types of diets that are all built on the same foundations I just mentioned, the same principles of overall fruit and veg intake, good sources of dietary fiber, limiting saturated fat, and then uh, and um, making sure that you have an appropriate amount of say, protein and, and so on. So I think sticking to those principles will allow someone to to be able to take care of the rest. Mm -hmm. I love how nutritionists have kind of taken this such complex field of all these mechanistic um, vitamins, minerals, whatever they do in the diet, and made it so simple in the form of these guidelines. But it feels that people in a way don't want it to be that simple. They want to make it more complicated because just looking at these guidelines, oh, that's too basic. What can I do to take my nutrition to the next level? What should I focus on? Should it be the omega-3 to omega-6 ratio? Should it be the polyphenols? What should I focus on to take it to the next level? And that's where I feel that a lot of people get caught up. And I feel that that's where a lot of people end up taking the deep dive into a certain camp or area or nutritional focus because i think whatever is being put out there by the media or by these organizations is so basic and it's meant for the general person and i'm not general so i need to take it to the next level and i think that's where it starts confusing a lot of people that are in the general group because now all of a sudden they're like should i be doing this should i be focusing on these nutrients and the answer to that obviously is no as we just discussed yeah we see this play out so often i mean 
if you take one of those exciting areas of, of research around like the gut microbiome, right? And we and there is fascinating research coming out all the time. It's still a lot of unanswered questions, mm -hmm. but what we see is that, well, what, what things do we know that is beneficial for the, uh, a healthy gut microbiome? Well, pretty consistently we see high fiber intakes and getting a variety of fruits and vegetables in diet because they give both that dietary fiber and certain types of prebiotic fiber and polyphenols. So again, all things people don't necessarily need to know, but they provide all those things that leads to a more diverse and healthier gut microbiome of these bacteria that are in our gut. And so the kind of, if we come back to our food-based recommendations, what is the punchline? Eat more fruit and vegetables. And again, like you said, that's not nice for, for some people to hear. They want <laughs> something more exciting. So what do they jump to is like, well, no, I can get these probiotic supplements and there's all these different exactly. species of probiotics and I'll try and find out which are the best ones. And, and they'll jump to that and just not even worry about, well, are you even consuming the recommended amount of fruit and veg? Like that will have much more of an impact on your health than trying to get the right specific probiotic strain that we're still trying to work out. Definitely. And uh, one of the questions that I also want to ask, um, you mentioned being um, mo more than likely you're not going to become deficient in any specific nutrient just because so much of our food is fortified. So it's not really going to happen unless you are unfortunately in a more impoverished scenario and don't have that access to a lot of foods. But you also mentioned being suboptimal. What does being suboptimal mean? Is that something people should be concerned about? And does that have an impact on health? Because I can see some people being afraid of that, being suboptimal. And all of a sudden, this is why a lot of people buy these supplements. They buy mm. a multivitamin. They buy whatever it is at Whole Foods or whatever health grocery store uh, you have local to you. And is there sure. anything that matters there? Yeah, that, that's important. And probably some of the terminology um, could, the, the, we could use different terms. And maybe um, I would be better using a, a term there because the idea that there's this one optimal that we need to reach is kind of not really true mm -hmm. it's more of a we can certainly have before we fall into deficiency for a nutrient we can have an insufficiency so we can have sufficiency so we have enough of this uh, nutrient um, so let's say if we're talking about uh, vitamin d we have a sufficiency so if we measured someone's vitamin d levels in the blood their vitamin d status is good there are um, no problem Levels below that, they could have an insufficiency. So that would mean they don't have a vitamin D deficiency yet. So where they'd be at, like say, risk uh, developing rickets, for example. But they do have an amount that's lower than we would recommend. So uh, a doctor would probably recommend them to get that level up either through sunlight exposure or through a vitamin D uh, supplement. And then we have true deficiency, which is below that, where you actually have risk of developing an acute condition. So vitamin D that might be rickets, vitamin C that might be scurvy and so on. And so when we're saying deficiencies are rare, again, in a westernized world, because of people's access to the amount of food they have and food fortification and so on, it's, it's quite rare to see those true deficiencies, although they probably can happen in, in certain situations. But then if people's overall diet is quite nutrient poor, they might be falling below that threshold that we would see as sufficient. And, and we do know a lot of people in the general population under consume uh, the RDA, so the recommended daily allowance for certain uh, micronutrients. And because of this, 
uh, we can again try and map this onto food-based terms because that makes more sense than people think yeah, I need to rush out and get a supplement. We actually don't see good evidence for a lot of supplement trials. Uh, the big example being say multivitamins, mm -hmm. most of the evidence in that area is like, yeah, they don't do anything. <laughs> and so the the big kind of punchline is, well, why would, pe why would we see these um, people having insufficient intakes? Well, again, let's look at the typical intake in the general population. We know most people under consume fruit and veg. So I think the latest um, um, data from the States would suggest somewhere around 85% of the population under consumes the, the recommended intake of vegetables. Close enough, the same for fruit. Uh, you have something like 95 or 97% of men are under consuming the fiber in intake recommendations. Mm -hmm. And so how do we change their intake of these nutrients and fiber? Well, again, it's focusing on these food groups that we know are beneficial. How do we get more of those into the diet and replace some of the ones that we know are going to be nutrient poor? And at that point, there's probably no need to rush out and look at a micronutrient supplement unless you're in a very specific situation. Like you have just started consuming a vegan diet, let's say, and you then are going to take a vitamin B12 supplement to cover your bases there because you're not really getting that from, from foods. So that would be an isolated situation. But apart from that, most people can just eat an overall healthy dietary pattern and probably don't need to worry about isolated supplementation unless something is flagged to them by their doctor. Like if they develop anemia and their doctor mm -hmm. recommends an iron supplement or something yeah. like that. But there's no one supplement everyone in the population needs to take kind of prophylactically, I don't think. Yeah. So to clarify that just a little bit for our listeners, um, you mentioned that if like the a large proportion of people are not eating their recommended daily allowance of fruits, vegetables, and all these things and are probably going to be um, insufficient in these vitamins. And let's say the fiber example where 90, 95% of men are not getting their recommended fiber intake. A lot of people, instead of trying to get fiber from those whole foods are going to take the shortcut and just get a fiber supplement. So are you saying that that is not a valid strategy, that they shouldn't take the e quote unquote easy route and just take a supplement or should they try to stay towards whole foods? Is there no benefit towards a supplement then? I think if it's a choice between the two, then uh, from a overall diet is far superior for a few reasons. With fiber specifically, someone would end up then taking a certain type of fiber supplement. That's going to be one type of fiber in, in a high dose. Whereas we know there's a few different types of fiber, whether that's insoluble, soluble, there's some prebiotic fibers and so on. But also what we care about is not just the fiber per se, high fiber foods also have other nutrients. And this is where we think about the food matrix and their synergy between these different nutrients. And that's the benefit of consuming um, high intakes of say fruits, vegetables, legumes, and so on, that yes, you're getting your high fiber intake, which is beneficial, but you're also getting a ton of these different micronutrients and polyphenols, all of which work together and work in many different ways uh, around the body. So I think food-based um, is going to be beneficial. We also see slight discrepancies sometimes between people with high intakes of a certain nutrient from their diet versus people then given an isolated nutrient in an intervention. Mm. Um, so for example, one of the areas what we see really clear health benefit to is people who regularly consume fatty fish. So omega-3 containing um, fish like salmon or mackerel. Mm -hmm. And if they, that's why we see those typical recommendations of if someone does eat fish, have aim for two servings or more of omega-3 rich 
uh, fish per week. Um, and that's a really clear, consistent finding in nutrition. However, we see a bit more kind of inconclusive evidence when we start looking at various trials on omega-3 supplements. Some are showing benefits, some are not. We're still trying to work out the dose. How high does it need to be? Uh, what form does it need to come in? And so we're seeing this kind of discrepancy here. We can show other examples of people with high intakes of certain nutrients in the diet ha is correlated with um, health outcomes, but supplementing someone with that isolated nutrient doesn't seem to confer the same benefit. So there's this, um, we need to think of a, a food as the exposure as opposed to being two reductions and thinking of one single nutrient. Um, now that said, if someone is finding it really difficult to get a nutrient, we can of course supplement, right? Someone mm -hmm. is finding it really difficult to eat enough protein um, and we're worried about them losing muscle mass or having muscle atrophy, then sure, for a period of time, we can use a whey protein supplement. Um, if someone is on a vegan diet, we can give them a vitamin B12 supplement. Or if someone is struggling to consume enough iron-rich foods and we see that there's an insufficiency, then of course we would get them to take a, an iron supplement. Um, but in cases where someone has the option of consuming more of these foods, we know there's much more of a benefit than just one individual nutrient in them. Does being suboptimal matter more for the athletes out there? I know you're into sports and nutrition, so for athletes that are listening, does it matter more? Like, do they need that little bit more edge to be optimal or does it also not matter as much if they're suboptimal? Um, I'm not sure it, it matters more in that if someone has, um, let, let's say take iron is a good example, that someone from um, insufficient iron intake or certainly when they're starting to get towards iron deficiency, we know that's problematic for their health and they also will have symptoms from it. But we also know there's direct impacts of that for athletes and how that impacts their performance, uh, their aerobic capacity as an example. And so in, in those uh, folks, it might actually show up more immediately, which on, on one side might be good. Um, but it's, it's hard to say that their loss of performance is any worse than someone feeling tired all the time. Um, so I hesitate to do that, but I, I think certainly the point at which maybe elite level athletes notice this could be a bit earlier because they're used to feeling really good. And if they even have small decrements in performance, that it becomes, uh, quite obvious pretty early. So I think, yeah, there might be, um, you could probably make a case that for insufficient intakes, that the, the cost of that shows up earlier and more obviously f for an athlete. So yeah, I think that might be a, a fair case someone could make. Sure. We've been talking about adding in supplements, um, going kind of on the opposite end of that. Um, when it comes to food intolerance tests and kind of the reductionist approach to diets, some people seem to find a lot of benefit in avoiding certain foods. Um, and obviously a lot of these things aren't evidence-based when it comes to food intolerance tests, but why do some people find benefit in avoiding certain foods? Let's say if they take an intolerance test, they say they're sensitive to gluten, but they're not celiac disease. Why do they seem to find a benefit if they're not really a celiac patient? Yeah, this is really interesting because there could be a few reasons that, that could explain this. Um, one thing to acknowledge is that we do have situations where I, I think it's pretty likely at this point based on, on what evidence has been accumulated that some people can have a sensitivity to gluten even though they do not have celiac disease and people will see this as non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Now, the, the, the kind of problem, I suppose, with this diagnosis for some purists is that 
you can't go and get a test to show that you have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. It's one by exclusion. So meaning that it's already been shown you don't have celiac disease, you don't have Crohn's disease, but you're still reporting that you have symptoms on ingesting gluten and when that's taken from your diet, you no longer have them. And so therefore someone may receive this kind of diagnosis. Uh, and there's still actually a bit of debate ar around that as well, I, th I think within um, uh, the medical community. Uh, but to me, it seems like it, it, it's fairly plausible that a small number of people do have this sensitivity. So that could be that. Still though, most of the estimates that at least I've seen in literature would suggest that is a relatively small number of people, probably 5% or, or less of the population. Um, so even maybe as, as low as 1%. Um, and so given that celiac disease has a prevalence of what, I don't know, 1% maybe as well, uh, mm -hmm. the amount of people that are having those issues is still really low. But a lot of people will report this benefit. Other reasons it could be is when they took out gluten-containing foods from their diet, there could be another component of their food that they do have an issue with. Um, that So they are getting a benefit and a symptom resolution, but it might not have been down to the gluten. The kind of best documented example we have of this is um, a, a group of compounds called FODMAPs. These are certain types of carbohydrates mm -hmm. that are um, indigestible. And uh, they, they're people can have a, a sensitivity, particularly in the cases of irritable bowel syndrome, so IBS, that if people have too high an intake of these certain, um, in, uh, these sugars, they can have symptoms. And so putting them on a low FODMAP diet can lead to symptom resolution. Now, there's quite a large crossover between the types of foods that contain a lot of FODMAPs and are gluten-containing. So if you take out gluten-containing foods, you're taking out all these various grains that contain FODMAPs. So now you've reduced the amount of FODMAPs in someone's diet, they may see symptom resolution because you've taken out the FODMAPs, but they're thinking it's down to the gluten. So that's another reason. Uh, another plausible reason could just simply be a placebo and a nocebo effect. Someone has read so much about gluten being the worst thing ever. Uh, they start immediately going on a gluten-free diet and then therefore they feel better, maybe because of the placebo effect. Then they one day say, oh, I'm going to test to see whether I can tolerate gluten. And they go and have uh, uh, loads of bread or something. And then they start having this nocebo uh, effect where they feel bad. Um, so that could plausibly be it. And then finally, there could be a, a situation where someone's just overall diet improves when they went on that gluten-free diet. So they've decided, okay, I need to get healthy. I've read this thing that gluten is the problem. Let me switch to a gluten-free diet. And when they do that, maybe they make other changes in their diet, right? So now the things they can't consume, right? They're no longer eating pizza or donuts or various other products that contain gluten. Um, and now they have to think, well, what foods will I kind of replace that with? And by nature, their overall diet quality might just improve. And therefore, that's why they might feel good. So I think there's a whole number of reasons, some of which has nothing to do with gluten. Some it could actually be gluten um, in that specific example. And then if we're thinking more broadly about other food intolerances, people absolutely do have um, intolerances to certain foods. Um, the typical food intolerance tests that are used 
are not evidence-based and are not actually flagging a food intolerance. They're just flagging something someone usually consumes. And so still, uh, I, th- I think the gold standard probably within immunology would be an elimination diet followed by a careful mm-hmm. reintroduction, usually done with a, a registered dietitian, and to kind of find which food someone may have a potential issue with. Sure. I feel like we're just getting started in the conversation, but I just looked at the timer and suddenly we're at 55 minutes. So I'm going to start slowly wrapping this up, but I do want to continue exploring food intolerance tests just briefly. And you talked about how most tests are obviously not evidence-based. And uh, I have a, one of my really good friends, he had some sort of like shoulder problem. Um, like this was a couple of years ago. And he went to a, a provider of some sort. I forget their exact credential, what it was, but they did a food sensitivity test. And I think they found he was sensitive to corn or something like that, then he's recommending eliminating corn from his diet. And obviously, I told him, probably a waste of time. You can continue eating corn. Your shoulder, she's probably coming from something else. But a lot of people, when they do encounter this scenario, food sensitivity tests offer a easily and like relatively cheap solution that they can maybe nocebo or placebo themselves into thinking that it works. So what should people do when they come to these impasses and these situations where they could go the easier out of doing this food sensitivity test or trying to eat a generally more healthful diet? Right. So I think the first step, if someone does suspect that there's something in their diet that is causing some degree of a symptom, um, the one thing they, they could do is if they wanted to, they could go to directly to a, a registered dietitian to discuss that. But in lieu of that, because people are probably not wanting to do that immediately, um, they, I think the first step would be exactly like you had said. Okay, first take stock. Is the overall diet that someone is consuming actually just generally healthy? And if it's not, that would be a good place to start because it might just be <laughs> that, right? You might just feel bad because your overall diet is terrible. Mm-hmm. So changing that towards a overall healthful diet pattern. And then you could start to think about, well, is there any obvious things that I've noticed that might be the, the the key trigger, right? So is it um is it only when I have caffeine, right? And I notice then well then sure that'd be the first thing you would inspect and see if I just take out my cup of coffee, does that solve it, right? Um but first you have that first line of going on a healthy uh uh diet. Then from there, if there's still some sort of issue, what you would ideally do this along with a a medical professional or a nutrition professional. Um, But in in lieu of that, I suppose people could try themselves, but I think that's not recommended because there's much more error you're likely to make. Uh, But you would essentially go about keeping a food diary of everything you're eating alongside a diary of your symptoms. So at what time, what was your exact symptom? At what time did it start? At what time did it stop? what were your meals, what times did you have, and exactly what did you consume. And if you can build it up over a week, over two weeks, and then start investigating, is there a key pattern here? It, it, when are these symptoms coming up? Is it every day? If it's not every day, like, is it only certain points in the day? Is it just random? And if so, after what meal did it occur or what was the previous two meals? Is there a certain ingredient that's common there? And then you can start to get a picture of, oh, if it's this one type of meal, it's one certain food that seems to be the trigger all the time, just start with taking that out and see does it it, it resolve the symptom. Um, Other ways then would be, again, in conjunction with a nutrition or medical professional, you could actually do um, an elimination diet where the dietitian would guide you through quite a restrictive diet. Um, where most of the typical foods that may cause issues would be taken out for a, 
a period of a number of weeks until there's a kind of complete resolution of your symptoms and you've been symptom free for a few weeks. Then there's a kind of careful reintroduction period of um, one kind of food group by food group. You'll introduce that for a day. Then the next day you'll go back to your normal restrictive diet and see over those two days, did you have any symptoms? If not, then you can have pretty good confidence that it wasn't that particular food or food group and you'd move on to the next one and work your way through all the foods that you've taken out until you find a culprit or if you might not find one at all you might find oh everything's fine again it just had to take out an aggravating factor for a period mm-hmm. of time um, because there's there's all sorts of things you would see in kind of uh, dietitians would see in, in in dietetic practice where that that would occur um, and then with that if it's something specific like irritable bowel syndrome, then there are specific interventions that a dietitian might try with someone like a low FODMAP diet. But again, that's something that would be done under their guidance. So I, I think that would be the first place, get your diet in order. And if there's something you still then truly suspect, ideally go and try and work on uh, that with a appropriate professional who can guide you through maybe an elimination diet. That would be the real way to work out this as opposed to um, jumping immediately to these intolerance mm-hmm. tests, which like you said, don't actually show you for intolerance. They just show you what foods you commonly consume. <laughs> so it seems like the answer is gather data and then gather more data, whether you do it by yourself or in conjunction with someone who can help you and who's licensed and the appropriate person to do that. Speaking of data, we just closed in in an hour. So I want to start closing this uh, episode. Unfortunately, I want to keep going, but with respect to your time, probably should end it soon. But our classic question to end is if you're at a coffee shop and you have and someone like recognizes you and asks you, how do you get healthy? What do you tell them in two minutes? I'm going to do a quick spin just so I can incorporate one of the other questions I want to ask you is in those two minutes, how do you advise someone to construct a healthful diet? Mm. So there's two elements. If I only had two minutes that I could get on, I could cover off the like the what to eat question quite simply by saying look just go look at what the dietary guidelines are and kind of pretty much base your dietary intake on those kind of food groups as as much as possible right so that would take me a few seconds and then i'd have a bit (laughs) of time to talk about some of the aspects beyond just the what to eat it's how to go about doing that um which in itself could probably be multiple hours of a, a, a lecture um so there's two sides. There's one, how do you actually make behavior change and adhere to that? Um, part of that from a nutrition sense would be finding a, a, a style of eating that you find easier than others to do. So don't make a change that you just find is really stressful or really difficult or really impossible to make. That'd be the first place. Uh, there's no one specific strategy you must follow. Any of them can be doable as long as they fit those dietary principles we talked about. So find the kind of setup that 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 you enjoy, and then I would probably um, make some sort of reference to just them getting clear on on why they're trying to change their diet, doing it for those right reasons, those intrinsic reasons of this is for your own health, for your reasons, and why you want to do it. Don't do it for anything that's kind of pressured from outside like society or friends or just acquaintances or what people tell us about um, how our bodies should look or the way you need to eat and all this type of stuff. Um, Do it for your own reasons that you're kind of very clear on. Um, And then, yeah, I think I'd probably be out of time. (laughs) (laughs) 
Absolutely beautiful answer and an incredible episode. Danny, thank you so much for coming on. I hope our listeners back home got some sort of value out of this. I know I got a lot of value out of this. So um, thank you once again for coming on. Man, thank you so much. It was uh, really enjoyable and I really, really appreciate you asking me. Definitely. Hey, everyone. This is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one.